0: Welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn.
1: Hello, welcome to the Nothing is Wasted podcast. My name is Davey. I'm your host. And joining me, we have another co-host for the entire month of March, Justine Fralker. Justine, how are you?
2: I'm great. I'm so excited to be oh here. Oh my Thank gosh! You.
1: I'm so excited that you're joining us for this. If those those of you guys who are listening to this, um, if you have not listened to our interview with Justine, mm-hmm. she was episode 88, um, and it was an absolute like gem of an interview mm-hmm. uh, that we that we inter- that we've recorded in a <laughs> like hotel like room summer, with Christy at summer camp.
2: Summer camp. <laughs> it was
1: awesome. It was awesome. So go back and listen to that. But Justine is an author, speaker, corporate trainer, and a certified daring way and dare to lead facilitator, which is based on the work of the infamous Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. And so you lead people through that. Can you kind of give us a little summary of kind of what, what exactly, what do you spend the bulk of your time doing?
2: Yeah. I, so I I'm a licensed professional counselor by trade. So I've been for over 20 years, basically teaching people how to cope with their stress in a healthier way, how to communicate more effectively with the people they love and lead, and how to walk out their full truths. Wow! And the last seven years, I have been honored and humbled to be certified under Brene. And so I get to teach this work of courage that's based off of 20 years of data, 400,000 pieces of data. And so now I'm really spending a lot of my time going into every size corporation or church and ministry doing Mm -hmm. across all industries, whether or not they'll listen to me for 90 minutes or three hours (laughs) or 16 hours. And I teach about shame and courage and empathy and how to have tough conversations, how to lean in when we get really overwhelmed with our emotions, because we're hurling them onto everyone else when we don't lean it.
1: Yeah, that's so good. And it's such needed work, not just in, you know, the the ministry world, which is where we spend a lot of our time, but especially in the corporate world, giving them the tools to be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. I I think this is so appropriate that you're joining us as the co-host for this month, because we're in the middle right now of a toxic relationship series. And you're going to be able to speak so much to this, but I want to make sure that the listener understands that this is part two of our toxic relationship series. So if you've missed the first part, go back and Listen to the last episode. The first part was with Deborah Folada, and Deborah is actually also doubling as our resident counselor for this series. So if you've been a part of series before, you know that uh, we typically have a resident counselor that will come and on the back end after the interview, kind of fill in some gaps with some professional type uh, 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 voice or from their seat of a you know more more certified training voice. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we brought Deborah Folada back on for that. So she'll be right after this interview and. In the- the outro spot, um, but I wanted to kind of begin this conversation a little bit because we have an incredible interview with Rebecca Bender, and I know that you listened to that interview. And and one of the one of the key characteristics that I felt like came out of this interview was I just admired Rebecca's courage, oh, and this is yes. like right up the up the line of the work <laughs> that you do, Justine. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, I thought just maybe we could start having a conversation. You could share with us some things about. Uh, c- uh, courage, particularly pertaining to when you're recognizing if you're in a toxic relationship mm-hmm. and, and how to step up and have the courage to mm-hmm. begin to do some things about that, take agency.
2: Right. Well, and I think a lot of what we see in toxic relationships is the person who is in that toxic relationships, one of the most common things we hear is like, am I crazy? Am mm, I the crazy yep. one? Yeah. Even, th- and like, and we, but we have that voice, you know, Holy Spirit speaking to us, right. intuition is speaking to us like, this is not okay. This situation is crazy. And right. yet, because of the toxicity and what's happening, maybe because of where we've come from, and also because of the stories that we make up, we believe and buy into that lie of like, I'm the crazy one am yeah. I crazy mm-hmm. and then we start making the excuses that what's happening is okay mm-hmm. and so it really and it does it takes a lot of courage to lean into that feeling of am I crazy this doesn't feel right because it feels a lot easier to tap out of that right I'm gonna right. I'm gonna tap out of that that's super uncomfortable it's really vulnerable it's mm-hmm. uncertain I don't know what's gonna happen if I really explore that emotion of, I don't think that this is okay. And yeah. I have no idea what happens on the other side of if I say yeah. out loud, this is not okay.
1: Right. And, and, and I so think, that's vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's like the, the, I mean, the first step there is to be able to label, wait, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. And, and call this relationship what it is or call this situation mm-hmm. what it is. I think oftentimes you find you know especially with relationships with significant others or even in parental type you know parenting children yes. relationship or adult children relationships yeah this theme like like gaslighting you know this idea yep. that the the toxic really toxic party begins to convince you that you're the one that is crazy and so you begin mm-hmm. to feed those lies as well um mm-hmm. what what would you say based on some of the stuff that you guys do how do you um how do you begin to to start taking some action from that. Once you kind of recognize that, what does that look like in in these situations?
2: Well, a lot of what we're doing, especially in this work, we call it the learning to rise lesson. And so like when I realize I'm hooked by emotion, I will feel it in my body because Mm -hmm. we are feeling beings who sometimes think. Our emotions Hmm. get first crack. And so, like, when think about when we're in a toxic relationship, the ups and downs, the give and the take, and like, am I crazy? No, you're crazy, and like this doesn't feel okay. And then we kind like then they kind of lure us back in. And so, like, we're always in this hyped up fight, flight, or freeze response, which is our emotions right in the story. And so that first step in the learning to rise process, and it's not a one, two, three process, it's a practice, but like that first thing I have to do is I have to bring my thinking brain back on track by bringing down the physiological response Mm. of those emotions. And so what am I feeling in my head? What's in my chest? What's in my belly? Those are my tells. What is my body telling me that I'm hooked by emotion? Like For me, my number one tell is my pounding heart. I swear if you put me in a little (laughs) lake, I'd flood the town out (laughs) because my body's just pounding with my heart. And so that's my tell to be able to say, hold on a second not Mm. fit for human consumption right now. I, no talking, no texting, no yelling, no at Like I need to kind of stop, breathe, Mm. get mindful of the emotions that are going through me, not attached to them, but be mindful of them so that I can bring my, my thinking brain back on track and ask the question that we teach in this work, which is what's the story I'm making up? And so like, it's being able to say like, the story I'm making up is that I have to stay in this. That Mm. this is okay, that I am treated this way, that this is normal. And then you kind of start to see that and you can see it in black and white, especially if you write it down Mm. and you can kind of, you see the crazy, like you see, like, this is not okay. I don't see this anywhere else around me. This doesn't feel right. And then we get to lean into what that brings up, which is typically things like shame. Where did we come from? Vulnerability, grief, forgiveness. Wow, All of that
1: 's so good that 's so good, well, you know <clears throat> when we talk about toxic relationships, especially with re- relationships romantically or or sexually or anytime you have the human condition of selfishness coming into the relationship there 's going to be some level or measure of toxicity right Sin and selfishness brings that, but there is a threshold that we would mark as wait this isn't this is a toxic borderline abusive relationship, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there's some interplay between those two terms, toxic and abusive. And I think sure. it, it is, it is, you're right. So important to be able to articulate that and be able to recognize, wait, this is not healthy, despite mm-hmm. the lies that I'm telling myself, this is not healthy. And, and oftentimes that, you know, means that you have to share that with a third party in order for them to go, yes. wait, what are you, hold on. No, you, no, this is mm-hmm. unhealthy. And mm-hmm. so I think it's just, I think that, the, the, I mean, the stuff, this is, there's no, it's no coincidence that you're co-hosting with us this month <laughs> as we're kind of talking through this stuff. Cause this is, I think you've just got some really great insight into all of this. Wow. And Rebecca, Thank you. Rebecca has an incredible story. You know, incredible. I mean, she's, it's probably one of those like extreme cases mm-hmm. that we could ever think of, of like, this is a, this is a toxic situation and relationship. And so, you know, she's going to dive into this story, but you know, um, I I don't want to give too much of it away. And (laughs) so we're going to step into that in just a second. But before we do, I would love for you guys to go and rate and review the podcast. If this has benefited you, if this has ministered to you, if this has in any way impacted you, would you go tell us about that by giving us a five-star rating and and then reviewing it and sharing that? We love to read those. Sometimes we read them on the podcast as well, but mostly just really encourages us. It encourages us to keep going, and um, and it helps to to spread the word about the Nothing Is Wasted podcast to help more and more people. Uh, so make sure you go and rate and review the podcast before you listen to this interview.
2: Yeah, and we also would love and appreciate for you to follow us over on Instagram at Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. Screenshot your you know i iTunes that's right. or whatever app and share it in the stories because that that's really word of mouth is how it is we get these stories out and so we really appreciate Justine that, that's um, actually shares. how we
1: got connected with you like you were yep. interacting with us on Instagram and stuff yeah. and we were like man this I is share what I love it was and so what great
2: helps people I, I use social media to serve the world and it's so, so great yeah.
1: It's so great. So I'm telling you, social media, it can. I mean, it's a fantastic tool. It changes tool. everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, it
1: can, and And if you've got folks in your sphere of influence, please share this with, with with them. Another way you can share is we've developed this new platform called Stories. So nothingiswasted.com slash stories. You can go and read some stories. Um, So if you're just kind of at your desk at work and you can't pop in some headphones and listen to the podcast, we have other stories that we've not featured on the podcast where people have written out their stories. Just another way for people to share the the hope and healing and redemption that they're experiencing. And uh, we'd love for you to submit your story. So if you you have a great story of how God is doing some incredible work out of your pain, go to nothingiswasted.com slash stories and you can submit your story right there. Uh, you can also email us at hello at com If you have any suggestions for people to interview or any great stories that you come across, we'd love to hear those.
2: I love those stories. I know. Uh, storytelling is how we heal the world. It is. That's connection, right? It is. It's so, so true. Huge.
1: Everybody connects yeah. with a story. Everybody mm-hmm. connects with a narrative. Yep. We don't necessarily... With something.
2: With something we don't necessarily, in it. Yeah.
1: We don't connect with mm-hmm. facts. We, don't, we connect with story, which is why I love what we get to do, that we get to just mm-hmm. hear people's stories all the time. <laughs> yep.
2: Me too. All right. Well, let's go in and jump in and hear Rebecca Bender's story because it is incredible.
1: Rebecca, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, before we dive into your story, because your story is a heart-wrenching one, a fascinating one. It's one that topically we've not discussed a whole lot on this podcast. And so I'm, ex- I'm excited about diving into it because it's going to open up a whole new realm of helping people in different situations um, as they're navigating these certain valleys. Before, before we dive into that, though, can you just give us a little bit of brief context as to your life now? Who Who is Rebecca Bender uh, now? Where do you live? What does your family look like? Just kind of give us a, a brief <laughs> overview before we dive back in to this. Day. Yeah.
0: That's fun. Um, so I live in a small town in Oregon. I, My husband and I have been married 10 years, just celebrated 10 years. We have four uh, beautiful, lively little girls. Well, one's not little. One's older, but three little. So <laughs> four daughters, um, five, seven, nine, and 19. Oh, and wow. yeah, it's crazy. Life's crazy. We are busy. I mean, with four kids, you're crazy busy already. But then... Yeah adding on two working parents and a book coming out. And my job, um, now I run a nonprofit and we really seek to just change the mindset of a culture through a variety of mm. uh, mountains like entertainment, politics, government, and faith. So we have a lot of initiatives that we do wow. all the time. And um, yeah, work a lot with law enforcement, work cases, take the stand, expert trial. Um, so just busy, very full, yeah. abundant life. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Well, I mean, the work you're doing is is incredible work. It's very important work, and it stems from your story. It stems from what you've undergone, which is so great. It makes you the perfect person to interview on this podcast because we're constantly trying to help people find purpose in their pain. And as they come out of their valley, how can they turn their mi- their misery around into ministry? And that's what you're doing. But you're also intercepting sectors of society that the church is not able to reach into, you know, per se. And so you're, you're opening up those conversations. And specifically, it's around this idea of uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, um, the exploitation of, of people across the world. Um, and this mm-hmm. stems from from what you've gone through. So, can you can you take us back and just begin to lay out the story for us? Because I want to spend most of our time talking about your story. It's a it's a powerful story.
0: Yeah, it's cool. So, um, my story is you know, I'm from I'm from a small town in Oregon. I, I'm actually living back in the same town that I was born and raised in. Mm. I'm a fourth generation Southern Oregonian. So, my my dad, my grandma, my great grandparents all lived here. It's a small rural a farming kind of logging town. A lot of logging. My dad worked at the local lumber mill. My grandpa, my uncles, everyone I knew worked at the local lumber mill. Mm. So just kind of your average, all American small town kid. I had a really fun, easy childhood growing up, skipped, you know, rocks on the river and rode horses and rode my bike. And I was an only child. So um, I had a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles and just lively, fun, outgoing kid. My Parents, um, I was not raised in a Christian home. My grandma was a praying grandma, and I'd go to church with her if I'd stay the weekends. My cousins and I would go to church with her. She'd bring us to vacation Bible school in the summer. But my parents themselves were not living for the Lord. They believed in God, but they were not living yeah. for Jesus and mm. um, partied a lot. We'd go to friends' houses and they'd have a couple drinks while the kids were in the back playing Atari or Nintendo. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my childhood, right? I'm kind of dating myself Atari as an 80s kid, clearly. Like <laughs> <Hey, laughs> Snake it. on in, on, the, uh, snake on the Atari. Oh,
1: absolutely. Duck Hunt and all of the fun yes,
0: things Yes, I loved Duck Hunt. That's funny. I forgot about that game. Uh-huh. Um, my parents ended up divorcing when I was nine and it was a pretty ugly divorce. My My dad started drinking a lot. My mom was suddenly a single mom trying to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And my dad's side of the family was very religious. And to me, it seemed as a young kid, a lot of judgment, even though that Mm -hmm. was never their intention or their heart. And I can see that now as an adult. But as a kid, it seemed the religion that I only got occasionally seemed kind of, you know, like modern day Pharisee was how it felt. My mom's side was had a lot of dysfunction and I ended up inheriting kind of that bloodline of both where I have church planners and missionaries on one side and then abuse and addiction on the other. Mm. So when my parents divorced and my mom and I were in poverty for a while and my dad was, you know, busy in his alcoholism, I had those formative years from about nine to 12 or 13 of feeling very alone and very unimportant and very unwanted and thankfully, my mom ended up um, getting a, a good job. And we moved to from a town of 3000 to a town of about 35,000. So still pretty yeah, right. small town. <laughs> but to us, it was the big city uh. where they had a grocery store and more than two stoplights. <laughs> <laughs> but um, things kind of became normal for me after that. I started going to eighth grade and then high school. I was a fun, gregarious kid. I was involved in a lot. I was on prom court and, um, a cheerleader and a soccer player. And I was always involved in lots of things,
2: mm.
0: but I think some of that time where I was alone, it, I had a lot of, I had a lack of boundaries really. Mm. And I just wanted to be a part of things. And it was like, Hey, there's a party after the soccer game. And yeah. I'm like, I'm there. Can I bring the beer? You know, kind of, right. Kind of kid, just a party girl involved in everything. And, um, you know the enemy used to make me feel really bad about that until the Lord showed me that he had created a spirit of of bravery and mm. excitement in me that he really wanted to use for his honor and glory. Yeah, that's great. And I just didn't have the mentoring or the leadership to harness mm. those gifts in me in a positive way. So yeah. I just said yes to everything and got involved in everything. And I had already had so many vulnerabilities as a young girl, right? I I wanted attention from boys because mm. I had felt really alone. I I mean, you can kind of pull the thread back in all of our lives and identify that kids have vulnerabilities, even kids from good homes. And um, I just wanted to be a part of something. I wanted to feel um, loved. I wanted to experience adventure. I mean, I'm from this tiny little town. I was curious about the world and excited about being involved in stuff. And the enemy can take that if you don't have the right people in your lives. So... Mm for me, I ended up um, graduating year early, and then I got pregnant. And at 18, I had a little girl. That's my daughter that's now 19. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up meeting a guy who had all of the answers to all my problems. Mm I, you know, I'm suddenly a single mom at 18 trying to put myself through college and I did not have the best, um, kind of circle of influence. I had a, a friend of mine, one of my roommates ended up becoming a dancer and, and I didn't have some, some money one month and I was really struggling. And she said, Oh, it's just like being in your bathing suit. And, um, or she, you know, she, mm-hmm. I asked her questions like that. And and so my boundaries continually got expanded. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I met this guy, he continued to do the same. I mean, he made everything about me and the baby, which made me feel like I finally had this family for my little girl that I really wanted for broken little nine-year-old me. Um, mm. uh, but obviously I wasn't mature enough at 18, 19 almost at this time to really put two and two together. So when he continued to expand my boundaries too, instead of, you know, Chuck E. Cheese, and it was all of us as a family, the next weekend it would say, Well, let's go to the club and You know, let's go do this, let's Mm -hmm. go do that. And just gradually pushed my boundaries further and further. And I think that's really important because most people, most parents, myself included, you know, we teach our kids stranger danger. Mm -hmm. We say, you know, look out for that white minivan and the guy that's offering you a puppy. But we don't teach our kids when you're a teenager and Mm -hmm. you're forming friendships. What do you do when people are starting to do things like peer pressure that you're not yeah. comfortable with? How do you get out of situations that you're not feeling right in your spirit, right. feeling that gut check? What can you say? And can you do some like practice rounds with your teens yeah. to say, Oh, I've, I got to run or, Oh, I forgot I had something. Mm, um, no good. one taught me those things. Right. And maybe some people listening haven't with their thought about that with their kids either, but really important.
1: Yeah. Well, especially Not to teach
0: stranger danger. <laughs> absolutely.
1: Yeah. Because some of the most dangerous situations can come out of what starts from a what, seemingly comfortable situation. You're around people that, you know, friends that you have, uh, family members that, you know, unfortunately, and then it can, it can turn into, uh, some type of taking advantage of that vulnerability. And, um, and, and it's, and it can be so gray, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as clear and black and white, especially to, I mean, I have a six-year-old and a five-year-old. So our, our girl is a six-year-old. So we're already having conversations, especially with her about this kind of thing, but it's hard to articulate that and explain the gray areas of these things to, right, to a young child. But it's so right. important. You're right.
0: And as you're growing older and older, right? 13 to 18, it's like culture, especially not being raised in a Christian home. I mean, culture just completely desensitizes all of us to sell this false narrative to young women, to, you know, young women that being sexy is empowering and you feel independent and being desired is cool. And, um, it's just all this cultural, you know, desensitization, so to speak, that makes you think this is normal. This is okay. This is what everyone does on the movies. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't realize that this can actually be culture can be desensitizing us to hypersexuality. Yeah.
3: Wow.
1: So you found yourself in a situation where you were continually, your your boundaries were being pushed by this guy. What, what happens next?
0: Yeah. By, by him, by culture, by friends. And, and we had gone on vacation and started to see in hindsight, some red flags, but in the moment I was, you know, so in love. I just thought, this is it. I've met the man of my dreams and he has all the answers to my problems and the world's going to get better. And after about six months of dating me, invited me to move in with him. And then he told me that his job was relocating him to Las Vegas. And I was excited. Hmm. I was excited to get out of my small town. I was excited for the adventure. He had a, what appeared to be a good job. And so I thought I was going to just be able to be like a stay at home mom and maybe have another kid and, get married. I was I was really honestly excited. I thought I had really that the tables had turned for me.
3: Yeah. Wow.
0: But we got to Las Vegas and the day that we arrived, he t- took me to a dead end street and he said, "I spent a lot of money to get you here and I that was money I was using for my job and I need to get the money back." And I said, "Okay, okay yeah. I I remember saying, "Feeling like I'm sorry I put you out like that." I hmm. I felt stupid. I felt naive for not realizing the expense of a move. Yeah. I felt like the young naive kid instead of this twenty-four year old man telling me how much it cost him to move me and my daughter. So I felt, I felt dumb. I felt guilty. Mm. I felt responsible. Um, and so he said, "Well, I need you to go in that, that room right there." He showed me there was a door. It was a deserted strip mall. It was all gray, no lights, no signs, just a dead at a dead end street. And he said, the door with the camera over it is an escort service. And I, I need you to go in and sign up. Mm. And I said, escort, that sounds like prostitution. And he said, no, that's, it's not, that's not how it is That's sounds, that's just what it looks like on the movies. Um, this is just like dancing and you've mm. danced before. It's no big deal. And um, this is just how it works in Vegas. This is how they book dancers in Vegas. And I was like, yeah, I'm from a small town, but I'm not that naive. Mm. Like escorts prostitution. I'm a smart, I'm smart, you know? And uh, that's when he slapped me across the face and he said, you're going to go inside and get my money back. And I remember in that moment feeling all the emotions that a that a young woman feels when you've been physically abused for the first time. I remember thinking, well, this is how my, my mom used to fight with her boyfriend. So This is what adults do. Maybe it's not that bad, Mm. kind of minimizing. And then I remember this moment of feeling like, I don't know where my daughter is. Mm. I just got here yesterday. His brother had helped us move. I'd met his brother lots. Um, His brother always helped with the kids. So it felt like, you know, when you meet your partner's family, it felt like that next step. And so there had been no red flags with his brother before, but it was that moment of, I actually don't know where my daughter is. Mm. Like, I just need to get home. I just need to get the moving money back and go home. And I wanted everything to just go back to how they were yesterday. It's feeling hopeful and in love and excited. And it's like plugging your ears and going, la, 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 this isn't happening. Let's just go back to yesterday. And I thought if I went in and got the money back, that that's that's what would happen. And I wanted to believe him because I loved Mm. him.
1: Rebecca, I I honestly don't know what to say, you know, just in terms of I'm sorry that you were in that situation. And I know you've heard that before, I know that sounds trite, but for me to just to pallet that for a second and hear the situation that you're put into, I don't have I don't have words for that. But I, I'm really um I'm wondering what was going on in your mind in this situation as you were trying to make this decision. I know you already articulated that you were wondering where your daughter was. You just wanted to get back to quote unquote normal yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm sure that played into the next few moments of deciding what you're going to do in that moment. But I, I imagine there's a lot of people, a lot of women, especially who have been in that moment. We were just talking about it earlier, this, this crisis moment where you're like, I feel stuck. I, I feel pressured, uh, to say the least. I I don't know what to do in this moment. Can you give us some insight into kind of what happened uh, right there further and and what was going on in your head?
0: I think you're right. I think whether you obviously, a lot of people don't necessarily identify or relate with the feeling of being trafficked, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think we've all been in situations that make us feel uncomfortable, whether it's witnessing sexual harassment on the workplace or, Mm -hmm feeling pressured by that boy when you were 14. Um, Whether it's your friend saying something really uncomfortable and you don't speak up. We've all been in a moment of feeling like I should have done something and I didn't, or I don't know what to do. And then a few minutes and then it's over or the, Mm. the few minutes have gone by or things move on. And so you just, sometimes life happens kind of quickly and decisions kind of move quick and and before you can really figure out what to do, you're on to kind of the next moment. And I, I think I just complied out of fear. I mean, in hindsight, I could put thoughts to it. I don't remember having more thoughts than just, yeah. I don't know where my baby is. Mm. I just want to go back to yesterday. Like, that's all I can remember right. thinking. I think healthy adult me probably had some subconscious of I'm at a dead end road. So there's mm-hmm. no like through traffic. I'm in high heels and a dress. I'm thinking I'm going to the club. I borrowed my friend's fake ID. I mean, mm-hmm. this was pre Jesus. I was, you know, he's right. in jeans and tennis shoes. What, what's he going right. to do? chase me while I'm running down? This? It just all felt way more extreme right. than I, right. You'd ever really think of happening. And so you just kind of comply and hope it, hope you can trust someone that that you love. and. Yeah. And so I go inside this room, and it's um, it's three desks kind of butted together, and three women at the desks. They're phone girls, or what we're, they call phone girls. There's a dry erase board on the wall. It says brunette, blonde, redhead, Asian, exotic, with all these names like Candy, Ivy, Bambi, right? And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I mean, that's kind of like a strip club. So, um, so I come in and I say I'm, I'm here to sign up, and she pulls out all this paperwork, and she says you're 18, right? And I said yes, and she takes a copy of my ID and I look at this paper and it's kind of like medical forms. You know, it's all this right. stuff, and you're supposed to initial next to each line and you're kind of skimming over it, but no one's really reading those sort of things. And she says, that just states that you're not gonna solicit men for sex. That's not how it works. Mm. Like we don't, we don't do that. And I went, Oh, see, he can be trusted. This mm. will be just like dancing. So still up until now, I'm thinking, okay, well, I've already done that once before. I'm not. You know, I'm not a I'm a party girl at this point. I'm I was gonna go to the club that night and we're just gonna get the money back and things will go back to normal. But that's that's not what happened. Mm. And it was all a front to stay legal. That's how Las Vegas is able to legally send dancers to rooms. If anyone's ever been to Vegas, then you you know, they hand out cards on the side of the road. They have mobile billboards now up and down Mm. the strip. That's how you they can legally send girls because then if if the cops bust somebody, the this escort service, the company can say, "Oh, she signed this paperwork that she yeah. wouldn't do it. We had no clue we were hiring such a girl." Mm. Um, that's how they cover themselves legally.
1: Mm. So, how long was it until all this unraveled? As far as you finding out that this was all just a front, and and what was that like? If you feel comfortable sharing, you know, I mean, this is yeah. the, the immediate walking into this, you're, you're like you said, you're, Oh yeah, this guy can be trusted. This isn't, this isn't what I, what I thought it was originally.
0: Yeah. He made me think that he was there because he loved me and he wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure I was safe. And, um, really it was to take the money after every single call, Mm -hmm. he would drive me door to door. He would wait outside. Um, I wasn't able to drive for the first little bit. He would drive everywhere. Um, just kind of constantly being monitored. He started providing drugs. Um, I started using cocaine. Mm. I started drinking a lot. I just, I just started feeling really hopeless. And I can yeah. remember having a moment of like, how did I get here? Yeah. Like I'm from a, I'm a good kid from a good home. Like, how did I become a prostitute? Is how mm. it felt. And today we would never use that word with women. We would let them know they were involved in prostitution. It's something that they've done or who they are, but it's not, um, I mean, that's been happened to them, but it's not who they are.
1: It's not their identity. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was just moments of like, how did I, how did I get here? And the first time that I was sold, it was, um, it also, again, it just just happened so fast that Mm. you felt like, didn't really have any time to think. And you're thinking, okay, this isn't dancing. This isn't dancing. What, what do I do? What do I do? Is, are they going to get mad? Am I going to get mm. hurt? Is he get, am I going to get in trouble? All these moments that you're like playing in your mind and then they're done. And you're like, oh, okay, well now I don't have to figure it out because mm. now I'm walking out the door. And there he is to take all the money. And you're like, wow, this was not this was not the snake oil that I was sold mm. when you told me that your job was relocating you to Las Vegas, you know.
3: Wow.
1: To you know the the stigma that oftentimes from the outside looking in on these situations and and oftentimes what you'll hear very judgmental um can we say bigotous <laughs> uh personas in in church world especially there'll be statements like well, you put yourself in that situation or you But what, what you're telling me in your experience, and then I wonder too, if you can shed some light on, um, kind of in general, as you're, as you guys are working with uh, other gals in this situation, you're, you're saying that this was a, this was this like slippery slope of all of these deceptions and lies that took advantage of, of your vulnerability. And you found yourself in a place where you're going, yeah, like, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, and to what extent is that the case in so many of these situations with these girls that are in, you know, this, this type of trafficking and prostitution? And
0: Well, I think it's important to remember that most, there's two different types of what we would call like domestic pimp-controlled exploitation. And, and some one would be referred to as a Romeo pimp and the other would be referred to as a gorilla pimp. And so many women experience romeo type trafficking in the beginning Mm. so it's someone who's their entire scam is pretending that they're your boyfriend and they're in love with you they're exactly they're lying about their job they're lying about their age i mean all of those things i found out were complete lies he was not 24 Mm. he was never that was never his job it's complete con artist pretending to be someone that only that they as they're getting to know you they're being a chameleon and changing who they are in order to match exactly what you're looking for, um, but the important thing to remember is that's not how it stays. It's mm. they become a gorilla trafficker, where now you realize, like, oh my gosh, I've been tricked. Never mind, I'm out. I want to leave, and now it becomes physically violent. Yeah. Now it becomes, I'm going to threaten your kid. Now it's, I'm going to threaten your family, and so it's, it's not. This romantic slippery slope forever. I mean, I want to make that clear. It's just the beginning. It's just what we call the turnout phase. Mm. So there's there's dating, grooming, and then turning out. Those are usually the three phases that traffickers take victims through. And once you've passed that turnout, it's it's no longer a Romeo at that point. Mm. They're they're violent, they're brutal. I ended up being sold and traded between three different traffickers at that point. Two men tattooed their names on my back like a piece of cattle so I could be returned (sighs) if I ran. I had four attempted escapes. I got all the way home and one of them followed me to my small town in Oregon. Oh my
3: gosh. And
0: I was afraid for my family. So it's, I wanted, you know, for time's sake, obviously there's like so much, but I just wanted to be clear that that slippery slope is really just that grooming part. It's just to get you in their hooks. Um, And I think exactly what you said about sometimes people can judge. The reality is we don't tend to judge women in domestic violence. We tend to empathize with Mm. that feeling of being trapped, of having no financial security, of now you have kids involved. We also don't tend to judge people in cults. Mm -hmm. You're not like, Wow, why are those cult members of Marilyn Manson so crazy? It was it always becomes, wow, how did Marilyn Manson convince people to do those things? Right. right? We put the victim on the perpetrator. Right. We do the same thing with gangs. We're not thinking, you know, why don't those people just leave gangs? We're thinking, man, we have got to get to our young men and yeah. women that are in vulnerable communities and marginalized populations yeah. sooner. And and yet When it comes to this, we tend to blame the girl. And I think that needs to get really checked in our own hearts to go, why do we do that? Why are we blaming the perpetrator in domestic Mm -hmm. violence, cult-like relationships or gangs, but we want to really blame the girl, this young, vulnerable, 18, 19-year-old girl when this 30-year-old man is really knowing exactly what they're doing. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just had this thought, this might be completely out of context, but you think about John chapter eight with the woman caught in adultery and just having this conversation with you, I had this thought, I was like, I wonder if that was honestly, she was caught up in some kind of, you know, scheme like this as well, you know? And I mean, obviously we don't have a lot of details in that, but it, it definitely colors it in a different way. You begin to see why the heart of Jesus is coming through in these situations and saying like, Hey, you know, go and sin no more. (laughs) Those of you guys who are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone and everybody walks Mm -hmm. away. And it begins to show you there's a different side of all of these things that, that compels us as Christians to empathy and to stepping in and helping rather than throwing stones and judging. Right.
0: um, I would have done this. I would have done that. You think you would until you're uh, actually in in the moment of crisis and, and you don't know what to do and you freeze. Right. Well, or and, you flee or you fight. And I mean, that's not exactly what
1: you were in is in several of those situations where it's either fight, you know, fight or or flight kind of reactions. But especially yeah. that first one right there, that dead end, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to put myself right there in that, in that place with you and going, I have no idea what I would do. I have no I idea. I have this,
0: this por- part in my book where I share about a time where I did fight back. Right. Mm. And. And I said, no, I don't want to do this. And, and he abused me and, and I would hit him back or push back. And I'm, no, I'm done doing this. And I don't want to do this anymore. And this isn't what, this isn't a game to me. This is my life. And mm. I can remember him hitting me very hard and leaving. And I just fell to the ground and I started crying. And I remember wiping my mouth and having blood on my hand and thinking, what more can I do to make him love me? Like, I've done everything. Why won't he Mm. love me? Why isn't it enough? And when I finally got saved and I gave my life to Jesus, I can remember this moment that I remembered that memory. Mm. And Jesus said, that's how I felt about you. Oh, wow. That's how I felt about you. I've I've died. I've been humiliated. I died on the cross. I bled. I was humiliated. Like, what more can I do to Mm. make you love me? And that was... A moment where I got to see this grieving heart of Jesus who loves us so much yeah. and has done everything for us, and yet we don't necessarily give our lives to him. And yeah. I would never want to break the heart of Jesus the way that I remember feeling heartbroken. Mm. And that really turned me more t- towards the Lord.
3: Wow.
1: Hasn't Rebecca been amazing to listen to? We thought her story was so powerful and that she had so much wisdom that we asked her to come back for a special bonus episode all about identifying and combating human trafficking in our world today. Our regular episodes are typically story-driven, but our bonus episodes for our monthly partners are resource-driven, taking inspiration and moving it into transformation. Usually those bonus episodes are only available to our Nothing Is Wasted monthly partners, but this one we are releasing on iTunes for everyone this coming Monday. So you can get a taste of what our partners have access to every month. If you like what you hear Monday, you can go listen to all of our other previous bonus episodes by heading over to nothingiswasted.com partners and making a recurring monthly tax-deductible donation of $20 a month or more. If you're hesitant about committing to $20 a month, you can start a seven-day free trial to preview the bonus content we have under our partner program. Again, that's nothingiswasted.com slash partners. Here's a preview of my bonus conversation with Rebecca now.
0: If you see something that you think is suspicious or you suspect is some form of human trafficking, we would encourage you to do two things. One, never approach a situation. You don't know how Mm -hmm. dangerous it could be the amount of brainwashing that goes into victims. There's not going to be one thing you can say that's going to suddenly remove the brainwash. I know that's what people really want to hear. What's the one thing we can say? I would. What I would encourage people do is to either take out your phone and text yourself as much information as you can possibly remember because you think you're gonna remember it in that moment Mm. um, when when you end up wanting to call a hotline and report it, but you won't. So text height, weight, hair color, shirt, what vehicle they got in, maybe a state license plate, the color of the vehicle, make, model, put down anything that you possibly can and then please report it to the human trafficking hotline. And that hotline number, you can just Google human trafficking hotline, but for anyone listening, it's 888-3737.
1: You're, you know, you were in the middle of this, what became kind of the turning point for you? you? You alluded to, you know, giving your life to Jesus. I'm not sure where all that happens in the timeline of this, but at, at some point you were you were able to escape this, so can you kind of walk me th- on the timeline of that and what happened even you know I can only imagine even like as you're reflecting back spiritually, how did the Lord really intervene in this situation for you
0: yeah well there's there's still so much to the story, so you gonna have to Let's go, go obviously <laughs> grab the book but what we'll, <laughs> what I'll say is that yeah. from that moment of feeling that fight flight, or freeze till finally being able to escape was six, six long years and multiple attempted escapes. Um, I got completely addicted to drugs by the time I was 21, I was completely strung out. And my mom, my, all my family started knowing something was wrong and Mm -hmm. that no one, no one thought trafficking back then. Very few people probably think it today, right? When something, there's some red flags with their, 19 20 year old daughter very few people think human trafficking right they were more like are you on drugs are you mm. in domestic violence um what is happening and and so uh my mom flew to vegas and she could tell that i was definitely on drugs at that point and she took my daughter and told me i needed to turn my life around and um mm. and so a little while later i had uh got a list of of rehabs for for women and i called and nowhere there was one on there that was a faith-based home and i said i'm not calling no christian facility Mm. like these christians don't got a clue what life on the streets is like that's what i remember (laughs) saying to my mom and nowhere had vacancy except the christian home Mm. and so i left everything and flew to portland oregon where this church that has a, a rehab home took me in victory outreach and I went to the altar and I got radically delivered from drugs at the altar in the blink of an eye. And wow. uh, some people um, have had that happen and some people have not um, been so blessed. And I'm very, very grateful that mm. I went to prayer and I came out. I've never, ever had an urge to use drugs since God radically delivered me. Um, wow. But because of that, I thought that drugs were my problem. And that's why my boyfriend, quote unquote, kept hurting me and kept forcing me to do all these things because he had me convinced it was the drugs mm. now and not not him. Now that I'd made all the moving money back, now there's a whole nother issue, mm. right? And it's like just this constant chasing. Yep. He was finding this, the hook. Yeah, th- yeah, to yeah. Keep mouse on this. a wheel, yeah. just no matter yeah. what happens or something else. And so I thought, well, now that I'm clean and sober, now he can love me. Mm. And um, and I went back, filled with the Holy Spirit, delivered from drug addictions, and I went back. And wow things got seven times worse. I ended up getting, you know, in and out of different traffickers stables at that point. That's what they call them. And the one I was there, actually the longest, um, had a whole bunch of other women in the home. And I ended up just forming bonds with these other women. They were what we refer to as wife-in-laws. And so, um, Mm. for three years I was in that home until the feds finally raided the house. And, um, He was sentenced to 24 months in prison for tax evasion. And uh, close to his self-surrender date, he flew home to tell his mother, the trafficker, that he was going to prison for not paying his taxes. And I packed everything I could fit as soon as he got on the plane and I ran.
1: Wow. Man.
0: I knew he couldn't chase me this time. I knew he couldn't follow me to Oregon this time because he had to turn himself in. So I finally felt... Like I could get away and not be chased.
1: And this is one of those that branded his, his name on your back and chased you down. And
0: yeah, it's on the back of my neck. Wow,
1: what was that like? What was that feeling of of freedom when that when when that finally, you know, the the feds finally busted up that house and you finally did you feel free? Did you feel no,
0: no, um, so not like the movies. No, yeah. you're so brainwashed. I mean, you literally. Northern Colorado university just came out with a research report that shows that domestic human trafficking fits all 15 indicators of cult behavior. Every single indicator is checked off on this research. It's very much a form of brainwashing. It's mental chains. It's not duct tape and you know, handcuffs. It's, it's, um, you are brainwashed to Mm -hmm. believe it's us versus them. Um, you get rewarded for cooperation, you get punishment for non-cooperation. It's a extreme brainwash and trauma bonding, Stockholm syndrome,
3: yeah.
0: all that sort of stuff. Those aren't just words that people make up. Those are actual diagnoses in the DSM five right. handbook, you know. So um I definitely didn't feel that. And the feds the feds came into one of the houses in Dallas. I was in Vegas. A few months later, they had surrounded a townhouse of one of the other women. I was a few blocks away. So they never busted in the house that I was in that day. Um, but my trafficker said, take the kids and run, they're coming here next. And so I, I packed the kids up and and ran. And I was scared. I was afraid mm-hmm. they were gonna find me. I was afraid they were gonna take my daughter. He had me convinced that if they found me ever, that I would lose her to the state and I would lose my baby forever. And so I was just paranoid of losing my daughter. I mean, she was, and she still is, she's so important to me. She was the thing that, that really kept me going. And, Mm. um, it was the hook that they kept in me all the time was her safety. And so I was more afraid of losing her. So definitely did not feel like, yay, they're here. I felt like, oh no, the rival gang is here. I've got to save my baby, you Mm -hmm. know, go on the run. Um, and even when he finally, I packed up my things and ran uh, I can remember sitting in the airport um, December 31st, 2007. I can remember that because the ball dropped in New York City while I was mm. sitting at the gate waiting to board to go home to Oregon. And I remember feeling very afraid. Mm. Like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I've been arrested for prostitution. I probably can't pass background check or help at my kid's school. I don't know how to tell people. I'm so embarrassed. Um, where am I going to work? where am I going to live? I just, I didn't want to go back to this tiny little town that I remembered as a teenager of feeling like everyone knows all your business. There's nowhere to really get a job. Um, And I thought this is going to suck too. Mm. And I got really depressed. Mm.
1: I I mean, I just, I can't, I can't imagine Rebecca. So I, Mm. I appreciate how raw you're being with us and real you're being with us. Um, and it's really interesting that you say that, that you felt even, you felt, you still felt trapped. You know, I was going to say it's a Stockholm syndrome that, that was absolutely playing out in, in your story. But this time the trapped feeling was of the, 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 unknown, the, the, the guilt, the shame, the, all of that stuff. And at this time you're like what you said earlier, you're, you're filled with the Holy spirit. You're a born again believer. You're And yet you, there's so much on the inside that still has you in chains. And
0: And especially I think with traffic, with traffic victims, specifically domestic trafficking, trafficking that's happening right here in our communities. What people don't realize is once survivors are able to escape, they're right back to the same vulnerabilities mm. that got them trafficked in the yeah. first place. Wow. It's not, it's not like you rescue someone and then it all magically comes together, right? right. Like, oh, just give them Jesus and their GED. It's like, that's <laughs> not how it works. Yeah, You're right back to so small good. town, yep. no ambition, poverty. But now I've got even more. It's even more compl- compounded and complex. Right. Now I have an older daughter. I have a criminal record now. I have PTSD. I have extreme complex compound trauma that needs therapy, actual therapeutic models. Wow. I mean, there's it's it's even worse sometimes than just the vulnerabilities that were before. Wow. I've got to deal with those plus the trauma of exploitation, let alone all the abuse that happened during the trafficking, not just from the traffickers, but from the buyers. Yeah. I mean, how many times you get locked in a room by men that end up saying they don't want to pay? Um, and sexually assaulted yeah. locked in a room and beaten and thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this and thinking if I call the cops, then they'll arrest me for prostitution and maybe take my daughter. But if I don't call the cops and I'm locked in this room with this crazy man on drugs mm-hmm. in this weird hotel, it's just, it's all constant. It's constant living in fear and what yeah. that does to your like the psychology of your brain when you right. live in a constant state of fear and abuse. Um, it's, it's intense
1: yeah yeah well and I was just you know sitting here watching you with some of the emotion that's coming out in you and I imagine that 10 years ago plus when you're being freed at this point you probably now I might be wrong but you probably were pretty calloused to emotion that wasn't necessarily something that you were you expressed what was it was that something that was a part of who you were had you shut all that down in order to survive this what was that what was your emotional journey like right there
0: I was a very, very angry Mm. woman when I got out. I was not, um, oh, help me. Or, you know, I was mad. I was angry. I was rough. I was hardened. I would cuss you out. If you cut me off, I would get in your face in the post office line. If you were too close to me, I can remember feeling very angry. And I think exactly like you're saying, I had calloused heart, Mm. calloused mind, Um, But really, it was almost like I was regurgitating it onto other people because I couldn't regurgitate it on him. Yeah, Mm. Um, It's almost like hurt people, hurt people. We all Mm. hear that. It becomes cliche. And we think of that when we think of children. Mm. But we don't think of that with adults. We're not thinking, well, she's 25. Why can't she control her rage? And it's like because she couldn't, you know? Mm.
1: Okay, so somehow, you know, the next... 10 minutes or so, we're going to have to try to figure (laughs) out how to get through 10 years of your healing journey, because this is the part that I'm really curious about. This is the part that I feel like is remarkable about your story, because so many people get to this place in the story, and then it kind of stops. There's no forward progress. And obviously, this is why you're doing the work that you're doing is to help people to journey well into this healing and redemptive part of their story. But can you help me I think it was so important to, I was so important to articulate that what you did earlier, where there was a lot more complexity than just the fact that like, okay, she's free and she has Jesus, you know, and it should work out. Right. And she has a job, it should work <laughs> out or whatever, you know, what do you say? Jesus in a GED. Yeah. It should work yeah. out. Everything <laughs> should be fine. So much more complex than that. And yet you're able to, on this side of things, articulate the complexity of that, but that probably took some time to be able to even uncover that. Can you walk me along that journey a little bit of those, those 10 years of healing?
0: It's that, it's that saying it's, but by the grace of God, right there, Mm go I and, and God just kept this protection over me. kept this definite bubble over my daughter. And Mm. there was things that I had to work out. There was, um, it was moments of, uh, I think getting to know God was the the best thing, obviously, that can happen for anybody that wants to overcome Mm -hmm. hardship. And being able to admit that, man, I got some issues, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think we can fall into victim mentality real easy and minimize our behavior or character and say, well, I mean, that's because I've done this or this and they should just accept me for me. Mm -hmm. And we can, I think culture can do that pretty easy. And the reality is that's not who God intended you to be this is a byproduct of the scars and the hardness and the callousness that you're bringing into your new walk with Jesus. And it's time to let it go. Mm. Right. And I can remember a friend telling me you have partnered with rage as your protector, but it's time to let him go. And I think facing the fact that I had some real, I had some real crap, man. Like Mm. I had some real issues that I needed to address and not say, Oh, well, that's because of this. Of course it is. But now it's time to heal that. Mm. It's time to not be that angry person. It's time to get rid of irritability. It's time to start peeling layer by layer, year by year, going a little deeper and getting a little better. And believe me, I still have things to work through. Uh, I'm sensory, right? I can't do when things are too, too much noise. I kind of like want to flip out, but um, I think being really real with myself Mm. and saying. Uh, I haven't, I can't live through a fire and not come out smelling like smoke mm. and to at least admit like, Hey, I smell like smoke and I need some help and how uh, addressing and figuring out what those things are. And I think all of us can do that. All of us can say, or at least we should be able yeah. to say, these are the five character flaws that I'm working on. Mm. And, and I'm going to start biting my tongue more and I'm going to start practicing kindness a little more because whatever we practice gets stronger. Yeah. So they're going to practice gossip. Or you're going to practice kindness. It's your choice. Wow. It's your choice to strengthen that muscle of grace or to strengthen judgment. It's your choice, right? It's that battlefield of the mind that we all learned from Joyce Myers 20 years ago. Right. Right. It's
3: that. Yeah. We get the choice
0: to choose what we're going to practice.
1: That's so great. I heard, I can't remember who said this, but I heard somebody the other day say something about, you know, the first half of your life, you're collecting all of the things that you're going to have to work on you know, releasing the second half of your life, <laughs> just That's with all so these experiences, good. no matter who it is, no matter what kind of a situation you're in, whether it's as grave as something like this with sex trafficking or whether you've experienced something traumatic like we have or, or or whatever it is across the spectrum of that, you're constantly collecting all of these reasons to be angry and to be hurt and to be, you know, irritable, like what you said, and to be, and and then there's got to be this place where you begin to like surrender and begin to work on these things and not just allow them to. I love that you said, I love that you said that because you, for all intents and, you know, the, the, for every measure of the word, you were a victim, you know, you were a victim and it could be so easy for you to adopt this victim mentality. And yet to me, I'm, I'm hearing you say, well, this is the, these are the parts that, um, that, was causing me to step into the situation. This is a part of my decisions that caused me to step into it. These are the parts I was victimized in the situation and I'm rightly dividing all of these things. And yet at the same time, I've got to choose to step out of it. I've got to choose to let this go. I can't choose to hang on to it. That's so powerful.
0: It's hard because it's like you, it's this mixed bag in all of us of it's that nature versus nurture. And we Mm -hmm. all have a little bit of it and, and we're all responsible for our choices, you know, quote unquote, but you also see, when when you're able to kind of pull that thread back and say, Wow, my childhood really did affect me. I didn't think divorce affected me that much, but it really, really did. And sitting in um sitting in the car when my dad picked me up for visitation and driving to the bar and sitting there for two hours Mm. and having to walk to a payphone to call my mom, it it put something in my heart that felt unimportant. Mm. And and those feelings of um, when we would be at his house and someone would knock at the door, he'd have me go hide all the alcohol. And and at five, it made my brain start to think we keep secrets in this mm. house, and keeping secrets is normal. And now I'm a partier, and I'm keeping secrets from my coach. And now I'm dating a guy that's just caught, you know, pushed me and literally physically forced me to do something I really wasn't comfortable doing. And now I'm going to keep that secret, right? It's like, that's going back to the first time where it right. started realizing, oh, we just don't talk about things like right. this. And and that's normal. Um, and so there's that, I think it's this mixed bag of owning, okay, but I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And saying, sure, I may have had a learned behavior from a small child that wasn't healthy, but I don't have to carry that into mm-hmm. my kids. I don't have to continue that legacy. I can start figuring out how to be really honest, even if... People don't understand, um, you know, a 38-year story and a 90-minute interview.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know, right. And, um, <laughs> oh. and that's
0: okay. And I'm, just, you know, it's okay. Just being able to be okay with it.
1: How, how did you find in, in the midst of recognizing some of these learned behaviors, some of these, you know, people call them different things, these agreements that you've made with the enemy, lies that you believed, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm what did that look like specifically and practically for you? Can you remember certain times of having to replace that lie, replace that, uh, you know, and, and, and what did that look like for you? Like cognitively?
0: Totally. How did that actually
1: play out for you?
0: Man, I have, I have a real big one and then I have a, I guess, a smaller one, but so I was in church and, um, I had a girl, there was like a group of women that were all young women about all of us were the same age. And so we're in this group of friends and one girl that just, she was offended about everything, right? Mm-hmm. She's gluten-free and we all don't eat gluten-free. She's mad, right? <laughs> You're like, girl, get up. And I'm, uh, hey
1: I'm, Rebecca, here's what somebody, I heard somebody say this the other day and I was like, and now I'm looking for it, that we are a culture that is addicted to outrage.
0: It's, it's good. We just want yeah. to get
1: outraged and offended about everything.
0: Everything. Well, Jesus is real clear about offenses is in your own heart. It's yes. not what someone else is doing. Anyways.
1: Right? Yeah. Sorry. So I
0: write her this letter and I'm like, Hey girl, I love you. And I, I know all the dreams you have in your heart. And like, if you don't figure out how to get this offense thing, that's mm. bothering you, like, you're, I want to see you reach your promise land. I don't want to see you like the children of Israel walking in circles for the next 40 years. Well, she was real mad about that letter. And we went to leave the church nursery and she like shoulder checked me. And I was like, this girl does not remember. I've been to jail. No miss." Mm, I'm the wrong remember My podcast
1: is hood to hold. Okay. So I've been through the hood.
0: (laughs) 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 So I, uh, I got home and I'm mad. I'm like, this girl, does she remember who I am? <laughs> like, I will cut her. No, I'm kidding. And, mm. um, and later that night, her husband like sends me this Facebook message telling me that I was out of line for my letter. Mm. And then I was really mad. And so I told my husband, you need to call him. He's not my pastor. And he is not my, who is he to rebuke me? And I just went off. And my husband's like, babe, you're starting to kind of act a little crazy. And mm. I think you need to like take some time in prayer. I'm like, Crazy. I'll show you crazy. This was a long time ago. Okay. It was like seven years ago. So I, I'm raging at this point. Like all I'm thinking about is beating this woman up. I'm not mm. kidding. Like I full blown, I went from just being angry. I could, I was seeing red. Mm. Like I wasn't thinking normal. I was done. And I grabbed my keys and I was going to their house. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And I was going to bang on the door <laughs> and just punch this girl. I was so mad. and he came, my husband came out to my car and grabbed my keys. He said, you need to go get some prayer. This is not normal, honey. Mm -hmm. Like, like something's wrong with you. (laughs) Like you have some
3: issues.
0: (laughs) And when you know everything I've lived through, like my face has been broken in five places. Mm -hmm. I've been hospitalized for dehydration and overexhaustion. I I have some, I had some major rage, right. Mm -hmm. And, and kind of rightfully so, but now I'm in my new life and it's still seeping out. And How do I get rid of it? And how do I control it? And and I couldn't figure it out. So I went and got prayer right then. I walked across the street. My best friend had gotten a house across the street from us, and she invited me in. She actually stopped at the door and she was like, "Let me get my holy oil. I don't (laughs) want you in my house yet." She she prayed over me and she said, um, "She said men have overstepped their boundaries in your life, like you felt this husband did tonight."
3: Mm.
0: And there have also been men that have not come to your protection the way you felt your husband didn't tonight. Mm. And you. that's when she said, and you've partnered with Rage as your protector and it's time to let him go. And she just started praying over me. i I buy the spirit of Rage in the name of Jesus. Wow. And she just started praying that the Holy Spirit would fill up those places in my heart and mind. And, and I wish that I could tell you that it went away immediately. But what it did cause me to do was start kind of changing the channel of my mind. Mm. Whereas over the next month, I would think about this woman a lot. And I would force myself to, to change my thoughts and go, yeah. you know what? I'm going to start thinking about my shopping list, or I'm going to start quoting scripture instead. Mm. And over time, I started thinking of her less and less. So now I really only think of her when I tell the story. Mm. Poor lady. I hope she doesn't listen to this. She knows exactly who she is. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a real tangible way of thinking. Not everyone's going to be delivered instantly. There's yeah. going to be some times that you actually have to take control of your own thoughts And times when your past is going to seep into your new life that you got to figure out where's that line of having like a normally, normal, healthy, emotional, wow, that hurt my feelings and a really unhealthy, you've hit like a PTSD moment that something needs some therapy or prayer, you know?
1: Wow. Wow. That's man. I speaking of your husband, I would love to hear about him a little bit, especially how long ago did you guys get married? 10 years. 10 years ago. So over the past 10 years, really this the bulk of this healing journey for you. Tell me what he has done to help create an environment where now you feel, uh, I don't, you know, maybe safe is there, but you feel these things can, be, can begin to surface and you can work through all of these things. How has he really played into helping you to work through these things? What does that look like? Um, As far as your relationship, because I'm sure that there's been some points of, you know, uh, friction in that, but also some really healing moments as well, I can imagine.
0: Yeah, when we first got married, I can remember driving to and from different speaking engagements um, that I was sharing my testimony at and I would just have to constantly say out loud, my husband loves me and he's on my team. My Mm. husband loves me and he's on my team. My husband loves me and he's on my team because I I just felt like everyone was against me. Mm. Um, no one understood. No one got it. And and quite frankly, I didn't know how to even articulate it to people yet. And so you felt the questions, you felt the judgment and in, in questions that people had. You felt the looks or the shaking of heads out in audiences when you would try to explain your story. And and some of that was actually really beneficial because it would cause me to go to the Lord and say, "Why did I do that? Why did I go left instead of right?" and mm. or why didn't I call the police and, and let me seek my own heart and, and have the Lord reveal that but um, he really created the safety of praying for me a lot, reminding me that um, we were going to I would get through this and it was going to mm. be okay and he's a landscaper, so he would share oftentimes a lot of analogies mm. about fruit and um (laughs) you know just letting things ripen and that
1: because of his profession he probably understands jesus is teaching more than any of
3: us
0: (laughs) he's like you know an an oak tree doesn't grow in a day Mm. and you know even the acorn has an oak tree inside of it Mm. and this you're going to get through this and um just a very prayerful patient kind man i'm so so blessed Mm. and he has uh Three older sisters, and they also have crazy testimonies. Um, and so I, he always says that God was just preparing him his whole life for this, and and <laughs> oh. now we have four daughters, and he's like, "Yep, this is clearly just my <laughs> he was, life." So he was,
1: he was born for this. Wow.
3: Yeah, wow.
0: yeah. He's very patient, very loving, and just really encouraging. Yeah. He's a quiet man. He's quite the opposite than me. I'm very extrovert, and he's very introvert. But when he brings. Uh, A wise word. It definitely Mm -hmm. it comes with a lot of weight, and you can feel it, you know. So I needed that. I need that to temper me.
3: Wow.
1: Well, we're we're unfortunately running out of time. I wish we had a lot more time to talk (laughs) about this. But I do want to hear. It's okay. I do want to hear just maybe in some you know some closing thoughts from you on some aspects where you've just seen God powerfully bring redemption to this. What, what do you qualify as redemption? You know, we we throw this word out there a lot, right? Redemption, God's redeeming our story. Like, But for you, as you look at your story, what does that mean for you? What does redemption mean for you?
0: Man, so many things. I, I don't know if there has not been a single area that God has not redeemed for me in my life, whether that's learning how to have real friendships and not just being forced mm. into friendships with the women that are also trafficked victims, which, is, which was fine. Um, one of those women is still my best friend today. She was able Mm. to escape and she found me and she just finished her first Ted talk. And I mean, she's doing phenomenal work. And so just to see that relationship redeemed in a way that now we both give our lives to God and are doing great things that's redeeming. Um, I wrote a, my first book was called roadmap to redemption. It was Mm. 10 things that God did in my life. Um, And, and then I knew that I wanted to wait and and traditionally publish my memoir. Mm-hmm. And I tried for a long time and uh, finally got, uh, not, you know, got to sign with Zondervan and mm-hmm. my book in pursuit of love um, is out January, it came mm-hmm. out January 28th, 2020. And so just that redemption of feeling like everything that the enemy intended for harm, God yeah. has, has used for his honor and glory I've trained over 100,000 FBI agents, undercover cops, homeland security, heads of Department of Justice money laundering task forces. I've got to go undercover. I've worked Super Bowl. All the things that I wouldn't have even thought that that I had anything special to offer. And yet I get to pull back the curtain and Mm. show those that have the ability to intercept victims. I get to show them what's what really happens behind the scenes and the amount of brainwash and control tactics that are used. Mm. And we've, we created an online school called Elevate Academy that allows survivors to figure out their now what. So it does a lot of career exploration, helps with job interviews, how to talk about your criminal record during an interview. And year to date, we've had 644 survivors go through that program. Oh, wow. So I just would have never, ever thought that God would have been able to even Mm. use anything from my past. Um, I'm so grateful. I went back to school, finished my master's, and I get to now share his story of redemption to anyone that will hear. And I'm I'm so grateful to see that it wasn't just overcoming trauma and now having this actual family that I really always wanted, and that was the real desire of my heart from day one. Mm. But I get to have that now, But that every tiny detail that I've, that I've got to remember about the horror, I now actually get to use to help others overcome and to help law enforcement find Mm. those girls. It's just literally every single tiny thing God has, has used. And, and part of that is walking into it and and owning it and letting him use it and not hiding it and shaming our past, but just pulling it out and saying, God, this is what I got. What do you want to do? And And learning to hear his voice and to be obedient when he's like, okay, quit your job, do this. And Mm -hmm. you're like, all right, well, can't be worse (laughs) than anything else I've already been through. So let's (laughs) just jump for it, you know?
1: (laughs) Uh, That is kind of, that is an upside to going through so much hardship and trauma is that, you know, everything, it kind of pales in comparison. You're like, all right, well, here we go. You know, that's one aspect of, it's like, man, this is something that, you know, I've gone through this. Can it get worse than this? Right. And, uh, (laughs) and so you can jump and you can, you can take those faith steps and go, well, at least I I know I can trust the Lord. Um, Yeah. It's
0: it's nurturing grit, nurturing fearlessness. I know fearlessness gets a bad word, but Mm. I mean, a bad rap, but Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's true. It's like, well, if you quit your job and go into full-time ministry, well, what if you can't pay the bills? I couldn't pay the bills when I ran for my trafficker and God worked it Mm -hmm. out. So If I can trust him then, how much more can I trust him now? Yeah,
1: it's so good. Rebecca, I love what you, the first word that you said, or uh, about the first word you said after I asked you about redemption, is you said learning to, and then you kind of followed up with all these different things, you know. That, But I love the fact that, to me, it paints a picture of this, the, the truth that, redemption is a partnership with God that we have to choose to step into it. Some people, I feel like they sit back and they just kind of, okay, God, well, this is what happened to me. And now you're going to have to redeem my story. You're going to have to do this thing for me because we hear about redemption so much and we hear other people's stories and we're like, okay, where's mine, God? And, 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 And God's inviting us into some hard work.
0: Yeah. In order absolutely. for us to find redemption,
1: and you've gone through, and you've put in some hard work. This has not been an easy road. Re- the healing process has been just as difficult of a road because you're, you're now, uh, you know, causing you're, you're you're inviting all of these things to 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 be un- unrooted in you and and discovered in you that that were that were buried for so long. And so, I just want yeah. the listener to to recognize that this is a this is a that learning that that classroom experience this process that redemption is not just an overnight thing.
0: Thank you. That's really good. I never put much thought into that myself, but I think having that teachable spirit is mm. is so important especially with God and and I think it is really hard to like pull up your sleeves and go okay. Yeah. We got to tackle this. Like, okay, Jesus, me and you, I'm fasting all day. We're going to jump into this. I'm mm. tired of having this critical spirit and it's seeping into every area of my life when did it come in how do i get rid of it and how do i purposely start changing that and Mm. like biting my tongue every time i want to say something critical how like help me to be conscious of it and choose to say something else it it's not easy it's a lot of work it's a lot of um not just living with the oh well that's just how i am or well whatever god wants to change it but saying no this isn't good enough for me i want to be better. I want to be fully restored. Yeah. I wanna I wanna actually try to be like, you know, a whole, complete, healthy person. Mm. And we all say being Christ like, but like are we actually trying to be? And we are we working hard at being, are we just kind of going through our everyday? And it's not to say that we all don't fall short. I mean, of course right. we're humans. We're all gonna keep falling short. I'll be critical as soon as I get off this podcast, <laughs> so I'm sure. That's always how it works. You get road rage as <laughs> soon as you end up doing something, right? Um, uh, but it is work. It's a lot of work. And, um, uh, I think God is, is right there with us. He wants yeah. to help us. He wants to, he wants you to find it. And when you work hard for something, it means a lot. It's really, it's a lot more valuable. Right. Right. My daughter today, she's on a track scholarship at UC Berkeley. She's a D1 wow. hurdler. She's, uh, she's a phenomenal athlete. Gosh. And and I think sometimes even just watching her, it's like, she works really hard yeah. to, stay at a division one caliber athlete she she doesn't drink soda she doesn't cheat Mm. on her diet she's and when someone asked her once what do you what do you think about when you're running she said you just pick this most you pick the unmovable thing in front of you whether it's a mountain or a tree or the top of a building and you just lock your eyes on the thing that's unmovable and you just run wow and I loved that I thought wow wow what a spiritual lesson we could all learn from walking yeah. our eyes on the unshakable, unmovable thing.
3: Yeah. Just
0: Jesus. Just run.
3: Wow. Wow.
1: Rebecca, this has just been an incredible, incredible conversation. Um, you're more than inspiring. I feel like to say that your story is inspiring and you're inspiring would be extremely trite, would not give it the credit that it's due. And so thank you so much for spending the time with us. Um, I want to make sure that that the listener knows what, the book is called, it's called In Pursuit of Love and yes. it, it just released. And so you're going to want to make sure you, there's probably so much detail that we were not able to talk about in this conversation. So much the more. <laughs>
0: I've fled to London. I've got all the sorts of oh, fun, man. crazy stuff. Get the book. It's
3: I'm great. I'm so
1: glad you were able to put all of this into a memoir. I just think this is so valuable. And then you're doing a lot of work right now. Um, you've got a nonprofit. Uh, what's the name of that? Tell me a little bit about Rebecca that.
0: Rebecca Bender Initiative. Okay. The Rebecca Bender Initiative, it's just RebeccaBender.org. And uh, we just seek it changing culture as it pertains to hypersexuality and exploitation. So doing a lot of social impact work, a lot of helping victims, a lot of helping law enforcement and government and laws. There's a lot of laws right now in our country that are, um, you'd be shocked of what's starting to, the legalization of marijuana has Mm -hmm. uh, allowed an opportunity for a lot of states to consider legalizing prostitution. Mm. We have seven states right now that have put wow. legalizing prostitution on their ballot this year, um, so it's a lot of work. We, we're we're fighting a battle. I didn't and, know that.
1: Wow. So yeah. marijuana really is the 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 gateway drug. I
0: mean,
1: <laughs> a lot of it ways. makes you
0: think of your kids. I mean, the the yeah. desensitization to hypersexuality yeah. and commercial sex is just. Crazy wow. in our country right now. And, and so our nonprofit's really working to fight that.
1: Yeah. And you have a podcast called Hood, Hood to, to Holy. Holy. Hood to Holy. I <laughs> absolutely love that name.
0: That's yeah. Awesome. I bring on 12 of my friends, and we're, t- well, it's every time I have a new friend and they talk about their journey to success, the untold journey wow. from their transition of going after the call of God.
1: Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. This has just been an honor. I hope we get to have another conversation with you at some point. And thank you for the work that you're doing.
0: Thank you guys. It was so much fun. Thanks.
1: What an incredible interview with Rebecca. And before we uh, move on with this episode, I want to uh, hear from Deborah Faleta. She's an author Counselor and relationship expert, and happens to be our resident counselor for this series. So, Deborah, what are your thoughts?
4: You know, when I hear Rebecca's story, my heart goes out to her um, because I know so many people who struggle with the pain of their past and struggle with issues that started in their family of origin, issues that they don't even recognize until later on in their adulthood when things start to come to the surface. And you know, we all have a past. We all have some sort of a story, whether we're Christian or not Christian, you know. I think a lot of times Christians struggle with the idea that we carry baggage. But the truth is all of us come into relationships with problems, insecurities, fears, sins, and faulty beliefs about ourselves, and those beliefs tend to fuel our relationships and And we start living out of the things that we believe. There was a psychologist by the name of John Locke who came up with this idea that he called the tabula rasa theory. And basically what that means is as human beings, we're all born with a blank slate, a big white board, you know, with nothing on it. And as we grow and learn and interact with people, as we find our place in our family of origin and among our friends, people start to put labels on that whiteboard, words that define us, words that make us believe that is who we are. And our identity begins to get shaped from those labels that have been placed upon us. And sometimes those labels are good. You know, I think of my children and the words that I am pouring onto them to to help them shape their identity. But sometimes, like in Rebecca's situation, Those labels aren't so good. And we start believing things about ourselves that are not true. Maybe we feel like we're not good enough. Maybe we feel like we're not pretty enough. Maybe we feel like we'll never amount to anything. And you know what? The bottom line is we tend to attract and engage in the type of relationships that we think we deserve. Maybe you find yourself in a toxic relationship right now, a relationship that isn't healthy, you know, a relationship that isn't good for you, a relationship where like Rebecca, you're starting to feel like the boundaries are dissolving. You know, maybe, maybe there's something as severe as abuse, but maybe it's subtle. Uh, maybe there's control and manipulation and, and you're starting to feel like you have no say in this relationship. I think the key is backing up and asking yourself, what do you believe about yourself and how are those things impacting the relationships that you are choosing to engage in? Thank you, Deborah, so much for
2: that wisdom Mm, on mm. toxic relationships. So good. We also want to mention and give a shout out to Ryan O'Neill at Sleeping At Last. Uh, Incredible, talented music. I love him. You can download his music. Anywhere where music is streamed.
1: Don't you like when you got to get in your feels? You listen oh, to yes. Sleeping at Last. You know what I mean?
2: Like oh, yeah. just gotta Oh, yeah. Your- you know, like I got my Enneagram <laughs> downloaded on my phone. And like then I, yes, when I'm writing, uh, I listen to him. It's yeah. awesome.
1: It's awesome. Hey, listen, we have something really special for you guys as listeners. Um, normally every month we release a bonus episode strictly and exclusively for our monthly partners, which I'll tell you in a second how you can become a monthly partner to get access to all of this bonus content. But we are going to re- release a bonus episode with Rebecca Bender this coming Monday for everyone. So normally the bonus episodes, they go up on our monthly partner platform that's on our website. This one's going out on iTunes for everyone. We want to give you a teaser of our monthly content, but also we just felt like this particular, uh, what we talk about with Rebecca, this particular topic was so important. We wanted to make sure everybody was aware of this. And um, so make sure you listen to that on Monday. Don't forget about that. But also if you're interested in finding out more about our monthly partner program, accessing all kinds of bonus material, um, you can go to com slash partners against nothingiswasted.com slash partners. And you set up a or more recurring tax deductible donation. So you get a tax break for doing this. You're contributing to the mission of, and the ministry of nothing is wasted, but also you're getting all kinds of extra content in return for that. You can also set up a seven day trial if you want to kind of try out that stuff. So um, be sure to look, look for Rebecca Bender's bonus episode on Monday on iTunes.
2: Thank you, Davey. And we want to welcome Gary Thomas next week. So we are continuing our toxic relationship series with part three and go ahead and take a listen to a clip of his episode.
3: I was naive for a good part of my life, including the part of my life, frankly, that I wrote uh, Sacred Marriage. And I never really had a concept of toxic people. I just thought mm. the love of God is always going to break through. If I was surrendered to the Holy Spirit, if I was familiar with scriptures and applied them appropriately, if I was walking in obedience and hearing God correctly, uh, eventually all relationships would be re- reconciled and work out and everything would be fine. And I kept coming up against this one particular situation, just felt like I was hitting my head against the wall. Mm. And a good friend of mine named Dr. Steve Wilkie, he's been a friend for 15, 20 years now. He's also been a marriage and family therapist for over 35. Understands scripture, understands people as well. He said, "Gary, I want you to count in the book of Luke how many times Jesus was willing to let people walk away.